Hello, electorate listeners. This is Jen Taylor Skinner, and I want to talk to you about midterms, which are just around the corner. You know, it all starts with the House. If we flip just 23 districts in the House, we'll take back the majority and finally put a check on President Trump and the regressive administration supporting him. That includes the billionaire tax breaks, polluters writing clean air policies, children being ripped from their families. This is not what democracy is supposed to look like. But that's how it works with Trump and the conservatives controlling the House of Representatives. That's why we have to vote them out and flip the House in the midterms this year. We must elect progressive candidates who will hold Trump and his corrupt administration accountable. So get engaged now because it's going to take everyone. Join Swing Left at swingleft.org slash electorate to find a nearby swing district. This is the best chance we have to put a check on Trump. That means protecting our health care and protecting our democracy. Everybody who wants to take a stand must do more than vote this year. We need to get fired up, get off the couch, and volunteer. Sign up now at swingleft.org slash electorate. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this week's episode, the Me Too movement and male redemption. Isn't that nice? Some say he groped them or exposed himself to them, and many paint a picture of a respected figure abusing his position. Some of the details that have emerged are simply too graphic for morning television. Two women said he walked naked in front of them after taking a shower. NBC fired the Today Show host after a woman came forward Monday evening with allegations. Now more are telling their stories. There are accusations of lewd texts and comments of Lauer exposing himself. According to a New York Times report, five women have accused the comedian of either masturbating in front of them or engaging in other sexual misconduct. It all started about one year ago. There was this seismic shift in our culture, one that no one predicted or expected. The Me Too movement was reborn. And I say reborn because the phrase was first used by the movement's founder, activist Tarana Burke, over a decade ago. But it was only shortly after actress Alyssa Milano used the Me Too hashtag last fall that Tarana Burke's movement went viral. Within 24 hours of that first tweet, the Me Too hashtag had been tweeted more than a half a million times. But no sooner had the movement gained traction that the men who'd been accused started to plot their comebacks. And since nothing of this magnitude had happened in our culture before, no one seemed to have an answer about how to handle these comeback attempts. The latest being the comeback of comedian Louis C.K., who was quietly invited to do a set in August at the Comedy Cellar in New York. That was about nine months following the original allegations. But rumors about Louis C.K.'s behavior had been circulating for years, as early as 2012. So I became curious about what the stand-up culture for women was like and how Louis C.K.'s departure and return had affected their careers. I also wanted to better understand what made it ripe for this kind of abuse and what it was like for them in a sea of male comedians. So I started talking with a bunch of local women comedians, and one of them was Shannon Coyano. And actually, I didn't know before I interviewed Shannon that at one point, not only had she looked up to Louis C.K., but she'd auditioned for him. Here she is describing her comedic style and what the stand-up scene is like for women. Um, well... Uh, I think that in the Seattle comedy community that I'm often described by 
my outer appearance because I'm a woman of color. So, um, you know, I think that that is definitely a huge factor in how I get booked. I am Asian and I am also a mom, which there aren't very many comics that are parents. So I think because it, it just requires a lot of time, it's difficult to balance. Um, also, a lot of my peers are in their 20s or a lot of them are men. So uh, yeah, I think that that's typically how people see me as she's she's a mom and she's Asian and she's a woman. And that's how people describe me when they're booking me. You know, so this world's completely foreign to me. I don't, I don't quite understand why it matters that you're a woman of color. I mean, I understand it in the sense that, or in the context of you're being cast for a movie, but why does that matter in standup? Um, I think that, I think that the reason why there's an emphasis on that uh, is because I think that producers are trying to not only make their lineups more inclusive. But in terms of the audience in Seattle, there's a big appetite to see not the same old thing over and over again, which, you know, for a long time, most lineups were typically all male and a lot of lineups were typically all straight white males. So I think that a lot of people have been trying to diversify their lineups. And so mentioning, hey, we have women on our show. We have people of color on our show, you know, and I've definitely been on a lot of shows where they're like, oh, all mom lineup or mom comedy night. I'm really, I'm really serious. Yeah. So I, th- I think it's really just to to reach out to greater audiences and um, make comedy sort of more accessible to everyone. So did you have any reservations about going into stand up? I mean, kind of understanding what the climate might be like for a single mom? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I first started, I mean, I think that at every open mic that I went to, there were probably one to three other women out of 40 people per open mic. You know what I mean? So um, definitely when I first started, I was actually told to my face by many people that like this is a boys club you know, this is a guy's club. You know, not a lot of women are doing stand-up at the time that I started. I've been doing it for almost six years. It's changed a lot and it's still continuing to change. And I think that things are, um, I think that things are looking a lot different now than they were when I started. But yeah, when I started, I don't want to say it was hostile necessarily, but there were definitely rooms where there was slightly more hostility. Also, when I started, I think that I kind of got one of two attitudes typically for most men, which is one, I'm not going to give you the time of day because you're new and you're going to quit. And, uh, you know, you, you know, I think there was an attitude that like women don't have the balls to sort of stay in this atmosphere for very long. So yeah, they just kind of were like, ah, She'll be here a couple times. We'll never see her again. And then the other attitude by a lot of the men were, oh, here's a woman that wants to do stand-up. Let me hit on her. Let me try to ask her out. Let me date her. Let me objectify her. So 
I, not to say that was all men. Of course, that's not the case. I made a lot of great guy friends that I still have to this day. Um, but yeah, I would say a lot of men, It was they thought I was there for them to hit on me or they didn't need to give me their time of day because I wasn't going to stick it out. Growing up a little girl, it did not even occur to me that doing stand-up was something that I could ever do. It, it didn't even come into my mind because that's just not portrayed, you know, on television. That's not portrayed in any of the comedy clubs. That's not, you know, it 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 wasn't even on my radar. And so as I became an adult and I started watching comedy on TV, watching like Saturday Night Live and and knowing that I really enjoyed making my friends laugh in you know, in my group's circle of friends, enjoying that feeling. I, it was only then that I was like, well, maybe this is something I want to get into, but I was absolutely terrified. Um, it took me years before I actually got on a stage. You know, there was years of me secretly pining about wanting to do stand up and thinking like, this is not a reality. This is not something I'm going to actually be able to do. And, and when I was told it's a boys club, I mean, it was just apparent by like, you just walk into any comedy show at that time period and you're like, oh, it's, it's all men. <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, it didn't even need to be said. It was just obvious by reading the room, you know. Do you remember... I think it was um, maybe 2007 or 2008, Christopher Hitchens wrote this article in Vanity Fair and it was titled something like, Women Aren't Funny. Do you remember that? And do you think that that's a perception that persists in stand-up? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I think that there are a lot of people that felt that way. And I think things are starting to change, but you know, it, it's it's been a slow change. You know, there was one local comedian that I talked to and she said that, you know, it's been a bit uncomfortable since Louis C.K.'s comeback, especially when he comes up in the conversation with male comedians. And she showed me those social media posts. And I think you saw that, too, where there was one male comedian, you know, he said something to the effect of he was glad that Louis C.K. had returned and that he was Louis C.K., as in like, je suis Louis. <laughs> Is that surprising to you? Yeah, there are still people that are supporters of his and, and, and I see, you know, peers of mine fighting online about it. And a lot of people who are like, okay, man, you, you fucked up, you know, and excuse my language. When I first started doing comedy, he was someone that I very much looked up to for the simple fact that, you know, he's a single parent and he has two daughters and those were things that I could really relate to. I really enjoyed his self-deprecating humor. I thought he was being kind of real, you know, like I, I just thought, okay, he's expressing things that a lot of us feel as a parent or as someone who's just kind of facing hardships in life. And, and I could really relate to a lot of the things that he said. And I just thought he was so funny. I thought he's undeniably funny. And you know, I really looked up to him. And I think most of my peers would say the same thing, you know, that Louis C.K. was was uh, a living legend, you know, for a lot of comics. I got to meet him a few years ago. Uh, I was uh, auditioning for the Seattle International Comedy Competition, and he came through to watch people's auditions. Nobody knew he was coming. It was a secret. And he showed up to the Seattle Comedy Underground and 
it was great. It was a great experience. He stayed after he talked to people. He talked to me for a bit, he talked to all the comics that were there. And it was a really like pivotal moment in my life, to be honest. So let's say he came back into town and you auditioned for him again and had another chance to, to work with him. You know, what would he have needed to do, you know, to make you think that he'd done the work to prove that, you know, frankly, that he could work around women? What would make you feel comfortable? I don't really know, to be honest, how he should continue on. Like, I I don't really know. I think a lot of people are like, well, it's too soon for him to come back to comedy. It's just too soon. Um, And then there are other people that are like, well, how long do you need to punish someone? Well, I don't see that he's been punished. I don't see that. I see it as he made the statement that he was going to take himself out and do some serious self-reflection and uh, work on this shit. So do I think that he has suddenly completely and totally changed and now he's a new man after nine months? No, no, I do not. (laughs) Now here's where I might differ from many of my female peers in that I don't necessarily think he needs to quit comedy. I know a lot of women in the comedy community feel he should quit and shouldn't come back. And and I don't know how I feel about that. I think that what I would really require from him if he is going to keep on doing comedy and showing up to clubs is one, he needs to tell the owners that he's going to be coming through. He doesn't get to be in this elite club where he can just show up anymore because he fucked up right? And he lost trust. So in order to gain trust back from your audience and from your community, you need to ask permission. That's how I feel. You need to ask permission before you show up to a club because maybe people want to know if he's going to be there so that they have the opportunity to not be there if he's going to be there, if it's going to bother them. I think he also owes the women that he assaulted uh, a much grander apology. I don't think that that piddly letter that he did in the beginning is enough. I think that if some, if I recall correctly, he didn't even actually say the words, I'm sorry, in the letter. He admitted fault, but I don't think he ever actually says the words, I'm sorry, in that. Some of those women that came out saying what he did to them, they're getting death threats and they're being harassed simply for stating the truth that, hey, this man did this thing and he's admitting that he did these things and yet somehow the women that went through this are being harassed online doesn't make any sense and he needs to come out and he needs to fight for them and say no they didn't do anything wrong i'm the one that did something wrong and i feel like okay you want to do comedy again louise k these are things that you should be doing you know so that's where i'm at you know, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, as a stand-up comedian, you don't have an HR department, right? And, you know, what's that like for you? Like, what's your experience been like with men in relation to this? You know, not having any place to go. I've experienced lots and lots and lots of sexual harassment in the comedy community, you know, in life in general, but definitely in the comedy community, it's been pretty prevalent, you know, it sucks to say this, but I, for a long time, was so used to it that it didn't even occur to me that that <laughs> I should maybe make a stand. You know, it didn't. That's how regular 
it was when I first started. When I first started, every time I went to an open mic, somebody hit on me and asked me out or, and I'm like, nah, this is, it seems, a pr- would you do that in your workplace? You know, I'm, I'm here to do the same thing you are. I'm here to perfect my craft. And I feel like there are a lot of men that show up to open mics or comedy shows specifically to hit on their peers. And I'm just like, that to me is, that would never occur to me as a woman, that would never occur to me to show up anywhere with the assumption that I'm going to go uh, fuck a bunch of dudes there. Like that would never. So it's kind of like, why do men have that mentality? You know what I mean? Like I don't ever go into a space thinking like, oh, who can I fuck here? You know, but I think that a lot of men do walk into spaces with that attitude. And, you know, that's why the hashtag Me Too movement started because it is so much, unfortunately, a part of most women's lives, you know? I do want to get one thing clear, and that is that there are a lot of amazing, wonderful people in the comedy community, not just in Seattle, but everywhere I've gone and done comedy. And these are people, there's no other job, there's no other art form, there's no other craft, there's no other hobby that's like this, where you are alone on a stage and you're burying your soul and you're kind of trying to make connections really i mean making a room full of people feel good and feel happy and and in return you feel that way too because you've kind of given them that thing it's there's something really beautiful about it so i want to say that i love doing comedy um and i love a lot of the people who do comedy but it is somewhat lawless and there is no hr department as we've discussed and there aren't really any rules. Traditionally speaking, is that he decided to ask. He went up to a random woman who he has no idea if she's gonna like him or not, and he walked up to her, terrifying. How do women still go out with guys when you consider the fact that there is no greater threat to women than men? We're the number one threat to women. Globally and historically, we're the number one cause of, of injury and mayhem to women. We're the worst thing that ever happens to them. That's true. You know what our number one threat is? Next, I talk with Kate Mann. We discuss the concept of empathy, which is the excessive extension of sympathy to a male wrongdoer over his female victim. We're actually seeing this play out right now with Brett Kavanaugh, but I'll let Kate explain that. So in my book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, I primarily focus on empathy where it's um, it's a case of a privileged male perpetrator attracting sympathy, compassion, empathy compared to his female victim when it comes to misogynistic behavior, um, particularly sexual abuse. And I've subsequently come to think that there are other varieties of, of empathy as well where we... Um, tend to privilege male victims over female victims of similar kinds of crimes. Um, But I think for the purposes of the cases that we're considering here, the the sort of focal definition of empathy is is probably the main one to work with, where it's a male perpetrator, female victim, and for some reason, which, you know, is on the surface quite mysterious – we seem to have more sympathy in many cases for him. So that's sympathy. 
You know, I think one of the things about what's happening in relation to redemption in in empathy, you know, is that a lot of people, you know, mostly men, they're uncomfortable with women holding the keys to their reentry, right? And, you know, when empathy isn't going in the direction that they desire or, you know, the public isn't granting them reentry quickly enough, you know, they take the lead, right? So if you take Louis C.K.'s situation, for instance, it was only, I think, maybe eight or nine months after leaving the spotlight. It was he and another powerful man you know, who plotted his redemptive comeback routine, you know, without any cues from anywhere other than their own opinion. They both deemed together that he'd been away long enough. You know, Louis C.K. in that case, he wrote the script for his departure and he wrote the script for his comeback, you know, and he's basically announcing to all of us that he thought it was time for us to accept his comeback. Yeah, I think that's such a good observation. It it almost seems like, to me, an instance of a dynamic um that goes hand in hand in, with empathy, which is the giving and taking dynamic where privileged men tend to take or expect to be given um, desirable goods from um, particularly female sources in a heteronormative culture. So forgiveness tends to be seen as their birthright. And I think you're right that, you know, taking the lead and announcing their comeback rather prematurely because it's not up to them as to when they're invited back. Um, Yeah, that's really an instance of this sort of entitled sense that one can resume um, one's public persona and take the stage again, um, metaphorically or literally, when you think you've done your time. And again, you know, that's an odd phrase that is sometimes used here because these people haven't served jail time. They just haven't had extraordinarily privileged positions in the media or as comedians or, you know, the potential for, um, you know, the position of Supreme Court justice to be withheld. So we're talking about not punishment, but the delaying or postponing or withholding of extraordinarily privileges, which, you know, do sometimes require higher moral standards. You know, you remind me of another observation I've made, you know, around the language that's used to describe, you know, the experience of these men, right? You know, there people say they're often being destroyed or their careers are destroyed or, or ruined, right? They're being ruined, you know, which is far more dramatic than what actually happens to them, right? In most cases, it's just a downgrade in their privilege or, you know, the luxury that they're used to. And, you know, I remember this one story about Matt Lauer, and there was a headline that said something to the effect that he was lonely in the Hamptons and he was sulking around the Hamptons, you know, and I remember saying back then that, you know, he's he's in the Hamptons, right? And it's just this grandiose level of empathy, this grandiose language. And it almost sounds like a martyrdom in a sense, right? It seems like, I mean, they look quite whole to me um, in the in the sense of um, the civil law. I mean, it. It certainly um, their reputation isn't what it once was, but it ought not to be. These revelations are credible. You know, I believe Christine Blasey Ford, the professor who accused Brett Kavanaugh, um, I think her account is um, highly credible and, um, you know, really should be taken seriously. And I think it would be a disgrace if Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court, given what she's revealed at great personal cost um, and to no personal advantage that I can discern. 
You know, there's another phrase that you use in your book, and I think it describes what's happening with the Brett Kavanaugh nomination right now. And it also applies to, you know, what happened with Anita Hill. It's the phrase testimonial injustices. You know, and I think the example that that's given in the book is the character from the movie, The Talented Mr. Ripley, that was played by Gwyneth Paltrow, March Sherwood. I think that's the character's name. So can you describe what testimonial injustices mean? So testimonial injustice is um, Miranda Fricker's phrase, the philosopher um, who wrote a book that has been really deservedly influential in philosophy and beyond called Epistemic Injustice. And one variety of epistemic injustice, namely testimonial injustice, refers to this situation where less privileged people relative to, I think, often audience members or perhaps someone they're in testimonial conflict with, they're taken less seriously or dismissed as lying or as hysterical rather than listened to with the seriousness they deserve. So in one of her classic cases, it's Marge Sherwood being dismissed as basically a hysterical woman by Herbert Greenleaf when Marge is airing warranted suspicions that her fiancé has been done a mischief by Tom Ripley, the talented Mr. Ripley. So yeah, I think Christine Blasey Ford will, you know, face um, the challenge of testimonial injustice in order to be heard. Um, I just, I just hope she is. I hope we've learned our lesson since Anita Hill testified, and it did not have the effect it should have. Um, her words were out there, but they may as well have been silence given the effect it had on the outcome. So one can only hope that her heroism and the example that she set and the injustice we now recognize will prevent a similar travesty of justice in this case. I, I find it quite moving thinking back to Anita Hill, um, given you know certain of the parallels, um, although it should be noticed that women of color, I think, face an even higher degree of testimonial injustice, um, without a doubt. So that's something else to consider, the, the intersectionality here where, say, gender and race for a black woman can play together to make a double source and even a compounded source of sui generis testimonial injustice. You know, another feature of this exonerative journey, the deployment of women as human shields, right? And again, Brett Kavanaugh is a perfect example of that, right? Those 65 women who signed the letter in his defense, you know, attesting to his character. The logic is often that, you know, if they deploy women to testify to a man's character, that because they're women, that they literally represent the victim and they're beyond indictment. And therefore, by proxy, the man is beyond indictment. I mean, it's just such poor logic that it really defies um, well, it defies credibility that trumping up a certain number of women who at least are prepared to testify, they weren't um, assaulted by a certain man. I mean, you know, it makes as much sense as, you know, all of the people who John Wayne Gacy didn't kill coming forward to you know, testify to his good character. It's it's absurd. A rapist is someone who rapes at least one person. One person's testimony is sufficient when credible to raise serious doubts as to whether or not their 
a rapist. And that's what's happened in this case. Yeah, I mean, there is just this ludicrous aspect of bringing out a kind of whole parade of people who are testifying to someone's character when they can't, because it only takes one counterexample in the form of someone who has been assaulted by, in this case, a man, to make them a sexual assailant. Male redemption is a birthright, is part and parcel of what the Me Too movement should be, um, should be resisting. I mean, I could like we can we can paint a fucking redemptive pathway, <laughs> but it's just not what they want to hear. Right. All right. All right. That's Dr. Sarah Myrie, actually. And Sarah is a climate scientist and an outspoken advocate for women. And she was actually one of my very first guests. Sarah actually came back to discuss a local case where two influential men used their power to shape the narrative around multiple rape allegations made against one of them. Um, like you, you do all of the work and you stay and you continue to acknowledge your damage that you're done. Like you don't just step back like Louis CK back into the ring to applause. Like, fuck you. You, you know, it's a, it's insane that you would think that that would be an appropriate step to make. Um, because it's, it's clearly in, insufficient. It again still centers him as the arbiter of what is real and where the moral value should be and what should or should not happen in public. So it it just stinks. It's gross. And you can't how do you how do we get out in front of this without um men acknowledging that they have centered themselves for their entire, you know, professional and personal life? I don't know. You know, I want to talk about that essay that you wrote, the one about the local case of empathy, where, you know, these two powerful men here use their power to shape the narrative around some pretty, pretty serious rape allegations. So tell me about what happened there. Um, so let me give you some context for why I wrote the piece um, that appeared in Crosscut, which is a, a Seattle area publication. So this is about accusations um, that Dave Minert, who is a power broker in Seattle's nightlife scene and, and restaurateur, um, started an event called the Capitol Hill Block Party powerful man connected to other powerful men. So Dave was accused of raping, assaulting, and harassing. It's now up to 11 women, I believe. So I've been writing for The Stranger, which is one of Seattle's newspapers. I write kind of science commentary, cultural commentary. And Dan Savage is the the editor of The Stranger and also hosts Savage Love Podcast and is the sex columnist and, um, and, a, and a very famous person. And so Dan has been friends with Dave Minert, and Dan published a piece because he's the editor. It was his purview to publish it. And he published a piece about how it was entitled, When Your Friends Do Terrible Things. And the thesis was essentially, just because I didn't see it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And it was, um, it was a piece that allowed... Dan to narrate the entire public crisis around this man's predatory behavior and essentially excuse himself and reframe the narrative and center his response to the crisis as part of the story. 
So I found it hugely problematic and indicative of Dan Savage's internalized misogyny and his centering of the male narrative as a power broker in the culture. And so I wrote this piece about Dave Minert and the the empathy shown towards Dave Minert and the particular problematic role that Dan Savage played in elevating an exonerative narrative for Dave Minert. And I published it in an adjacent journal in Seattle. So it's pretty uncomfortable because it put me sort of at odds with a journal that I've been a huge fan of for a long time. I've been a fan of Dan Savage for a long time, but I think it's it's it was a really necessary step to take in, in Seattle politics. Yeah, I mean, we're both Seattleites, right? And if you live here, you're aware of both these men because they're they're powerful and they have really high profiles. And Dan Savage specifically, I've been a fan of his work and, you know, he's been an outspoken progressive advocate, especially around you know, LGBTQ issues, you know, so I find it really curious, this need to elevate the character of another powerful man, right? And his need to kind of nudge the public's empathy for his friend, you know, and and the fact that that supersedes his desire to elevate the experiences of, of the victim, you know, and I found that quite disappointing. Yeah. And I, there's a, this blind spot in, in this male behavior that because these men are so powerful in the culture, they can perpetuate this narrative over and over again with their editorial choices and their ability to insert themselves into the narrative. And in doing so, they paint themselves as heroes. They paint themselves as coming to terms in a new way, as if their struggle to understand this information is a part of the news cycle as well. It's a it's a really toxic and problematic paradigm that they perpetuate because they don't they don't see how they are centering themselves and their power in the culture and in the narrative around them. What that does is it erases the women in this case, almost a dozen women that have had their lives hijacked, that have had trauma, that have had to supplicate to an abuser. All of the damage that was done gets erased because the narrative becomes, oh, Dan Savage, he, just because he doesn't see it didn't doesn't mean it didn't happen. I don't care about that. Um, what I care about are the women um, on the back end of this abusive man in the culture. You know, and I read that Dan Savage piece, and I think that, you know, even the title, you know, My Friend Dave Minard, the title itself kind of frames the whole story in this redemptive light, right? Um, it sets the tone for how we're supposed to feel about about Dave, about Dave Minard. You know, before you even begin reading the piece, it pushes the reader, which in this case is the whole city, it pushes them towards this narrative where his friend is forgiven, you know, whether you want to grant that forgiveness or not. Yes, exactly. It puts him in a position where the exonerative narrative and the pathway to redemption is the next logical follow. And it plays upon all of our goodwill to think about people as being ultimately good, but having made bad decisions. And and that's not what journalism is for. Journalism is for revealing the stories that underlie the the public figures around us. It's for toppling brokers of power that are corrupt. Um, that's not the role of journalism in this space to continue to tacitly t- like turn towards the centering of the male narrative in this, because there's all when you do that, like at the core of the culture. The culture is not just, you know, news and reporting. It's it's personality. It's power brokering in that space. It's the charisma around these particular 
individuals that have garnered this much personal currency and power. They hold the keys to the fucking candy stores. That's why this matters so much is that their response in what they think of as a small microcosm actually shapes what the culture does behind it. And we're talking policy, law, the fate of people's lives, how money is spent, where moral attention value is is focused, it all follows. So they they get to exercise all this power without any real attention or responsibility to the consequences of their power being exercised. You know, I think one of those consequences is the erasure of the victims, right? And, you know, when when I think about the entire cycle, you know, from when allegations first surface to, you know, when the perpetrator responds and goes into exile, right, you know, to the end point, you know, when there's an attempt to make a comeback. And that last part of the cycle, there seems to be this almost desperate need to erase the victim's story. Yes. Because if the victims are visible, you know, that takes away the purity of the redemption. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It it complicates, it colors the water, you know, it pollutes the story. And we love the redemption narrative of falling from grace and and bootstrapping yourself back into a place where you've made amends. And like I think this this narrative, it forces women and feminists like you and I into this really hard corner where we have to be very clear about how, how upsetting this all is. You know, so we then get framed as problematic as well because we've had it. We are completely frustrated with the centering of the narrative focused on male redemption. And so we pay a cost in this dynamic too. Wouldn't it be nicer if we were just agreeable and passive and went along with the framing of these men? I mean, who doesn't want them to, you know, recover and resume their life? So these these thematic pieces that come out that are derived from the the bias inside of our culture that biases the the positive norm to be men and women are adjacent to the men always and we are not centered upon our values and our views are peripheral and so the victims then also become peripheral and then subsequently erased so no wonder like we're kind of frustrated and out in public saying this doesn't fly for me. We would like to do better in terms of the way we do reporting and justice for people that look just like me with with the same kind of experience of harassment and sexual violence just like me. So it like it feels kind of impossible like we just don't win in in these spaces as women in public trying to say no. You know, Sarah, for some reason when when we were talking I kept thinking of the movie The Birds with Tippi Hendren, of course, and Alfred Hitchcock. So do you know about the story between Alfred Hitchcock and Tippi Hedren? No, I don't know the story of that. So he used his power and he was rumored to be a misogynist, actually, and controlling and even predatory at times, right? And supposedly he was obsessed with Tippi Hedren. He would punish her on the set for rebuffing his advances. And at one point he threatened to to ruin her career, which he actually did. But, you know, but I remember her telling the story in, I think she wrote a memoir and that the story about the bird attack scene, right? So apparently she had been told that they would use mechanical birds on the set. But on the day of the shoot, she was told that those birds weren't working. So they had to use real birds. So basically Alfred Hitchcock directed the, the staff to throw live birds at her for five days straight. Wow. Right. So it was only after one bird kind of pecked her too close to the eye that she panicked and she said she'd had enough. Oh, right. But it yeah. just reminded me of that kind yeah. of power dynamic. And, 
you know, people kind of torturing her in a sense at, at Alfred Hitchcock's command. And it made me think about how we protect male geniuses as what we consider a male genius or men in power, you know, over the victim. And we bury the victim's experience. And we also bury the need for their recovery. Totally. Yeah, I know. And it's, it just flies in the face from the bodily experience of being a woman in the world and having experienced sexual violence and sexual trauma and the, and the demeanment and the shaming that comes along with all of it. There's a lifetime of work to be done inside of your own comfort in public and like how you broker intimacy with a man subsequently. It's amazing the damage that can be done in a very short amount of time to the, these fundamental feelings of worth and safety. And that story is unpalatable to the culture. We want women to like, don't bleed every month, clean that up. You know, don't have real pieces that can be wounded. Your wounding is not important. Just clean it up. And we would prefer you to return to that palatable product, that sexualized product that we find to be the most entertaining and the most interesting. And so you get this feedback about your own humanity in these spaces, you know, the way that you process trauma and the person that you are because of the experiences that you've had, no one cares and it's irrelevant. Those of us that are contributing to the Me Too movement that have had trauma and violence, we get pushed into spaces inside of institutions or in the public where we have to use our trauma to just garner relevancy. And it, it's a really uncomfortable transaction because it, it shouldn't require my trauma, my personal trauma or the trauma of Louis C.K.'s victims to get the attention of the culture to say, this is wrong, this behavior is wrong. So it, it's again like the feeling of like, we don't win by staying silent and we don't win by speaking up. But in the end of the day, like I'm a woman who goes home to a relationship with a man that requires the vulnerability to look at all that trauma and look at all this compartmentalization. And it hurts us in the end. Um, and it doesn't seem like there's any currency in the, in the culture to be concerned about that. So originally, I wanted this episode to help clarify, you know, what the exonerative pathway looks like, right? You know, because there seems to be a void there. And no one has a clear answer to what the redemptive pathway would look like, right? And so I was thinking that, you know, when the victim doesn't fill the void, you know, in that case, it's women, We in the cases we've been talking about. So when the victim doesn't fill that void, mm -hmm. someone else will. Yeah. Right? And typically, it's someone that you don't want to fill that void. It's not so hard, right? What you actually have to do is you have to care about what women care about and you have to listen to women. You have to believe them when they say, this is what an exonerative pathway for me would look like. Like Louis CK has enough money that he could, he could literally assemble a working group for comedy in general, like comedy writ large. He could assemble a working group of women comics he could catalog and describe all of their concerns about the culture. He could elevate that in multiple platforms. He could write op-eds. He could fund a nonprofit organization. Like there's tons of work that he could do out there to really center and value the voices of these women that were victimized. It's it's like it's not hard. Like I think that these exonerative pathways, there are there is a pathway, but it actually requires you 
addressing the concerns of the people that you hurt the most. And when you don't do that and you try to step back into public life, what it shows you is that you didn't learn anything. You just took a break. You took a long vacation and spent some money somewhere else. And some of your projects went on hiatus, but you're back at it. And that's how you think this works. And so it reveals, even at a deeper level, the misogyny that characterizes the worldview of these men. Um, so it shouldn't be this hard, but it is. And there is a pathway, but it's hard. <laughs> and, and that's the problem. You know, I was just talking to some women comedians about Louis C.K. And, you know, we were talking about how how he kind of took the initiative and, and came back, you know, came back way too soon. And he made a bunch of women uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, and, you know, there appears to be an absence of remorse there, frankly, you know, and, you know, the only consistent answer that I keep getting in relation to this is that, you know, I think people consistently say for a lot of these comebacks that it's too soon, right? Because, you know, frankly, the Me Too movement, you know, it started less than a year ago. I don't think a lot of people realize that it has been less than a year. We do love an exonerative pathway in the culture. Like we would elevate the service of a male comedian to change the culture. And we would say, you could choose that path and you could be really, really appreciated. But they don't turn towards that path because they actually fundamentally don't value the movement and what Me Too actually stands for. Yeah, but, you know, whenever I would ask that question of myself, you know, what does redemption look like? You know, what do, what should these comebacks look like? You know, my, my chest would tighten, right? And I get really, I get really pissed off. You know, I didn't, I just didn't want to think about them. You know, I wanted to spend my mental energy and my emotions thinking about how to map out a path for the victims. And, you know, how will they recover their lost opportunities, the lost jobs, the lost wages, you know, and who will help them regain their confidence and help them feel safe, right? Like that's the path that I'd rather spend my mental energy on right now. Why can't they do their own work for them themselves? Why does it always require us moving into their spaces and saying, this is how you respect other people. This is what it looks like. This is not about you. Your, your feelings are, are not that important here. There is a pathway, but it's not going to be comfortable. One of the things I'm realizing recently in this space with my relationship with men in general, I feel sometimes like I'm circling the bottom of a toilet drain with the culture. You have to go as low as possible. How many times do we have to say physical and sexual violence does huge damage in professional and personal settings? We are constantly negotiating our complicitness with the male ego versus our outrage with the male ego. Like that's that's basically where where I'm at these days. So luckily, like at least I can grow from here, right? At least there's places to grow out of this, like for me personally. And I think for our listeners and our community of sisters and women and advocates that are doing this work, I, the work is in front of us. And if we do this work now, our daughters and our sons will have to do less of it in the future. And, and that's one of the things that sustains me to continue to show up. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And just a friendly reminder that we need all hands on deck for this year's midterms because it's the house that counts. Volunteer with Swing Left and help put a check on Trump. Join us at swingleft.org slash electorate. Isn't that nice?